We're going to talk about two particular principles that are distinctive in and amongst themselves, and then we're going to try to meld these principles together to make a cohesive study out of it. One of the things we're going to do, we're going to be talking a little bit about one of the characteristics of the nature of God. And then on the other side of this is going to be dealing with some of the responsibilities that we have toward that nature that he has. The nature about which we're going to speak where God is concerned is having to do with his faithfulness. And then when we start looking at it from the standpoint of our responsibility to this, we're going to try to present some principles that we find from the Bible that have to do with our trusting in that faithfulness. So how is it that we might be able to learn to trust in the faithfulness of God? So we've got a rather comprehensive matter of study for us to engage for just a little bit this evening. We're going to be moving along in a pretty good clip, so you need to listen close because we've got a lot of things we want to try to cover in the short time that we've got. In order for us to be able to make some sense of talking about the faithfulness of God, we've got to get a little bit to the foundation of the concept itself, and that is talking about faith as it is that which relates to God. You talk about the term itself, those that are Bible students are familiar the word faith comes from the Greek word pistis, and basically you're talking about that which has to do with a conviction or belief in anything, usually based, obviously, on the statements you find, divine definition in Hebrews chapter 11, faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. So as it also particularly relates to God, it is that which also Thayer is going to tell us relates to how it is that he is the belief that we might have in him in his existence, as well as the fact that he is also the bestower of eternal salvation through Jesus Christ. So now if we're going to come to bring these two things together, let's understand a little bit about faith as it is in connection with God. Obviously, we are inquisitive people. We have logical minds, we can decide for things, uh, every accountable mind can do that. We can come to particular conclusions based on evidences that are presented to us. And there are evidences that are abundant regarding the existence of God. I think most of us should be familiar with that. Even if we did not have the Bible itself, the inquisitive minds that we have are going to try to search out as to why it is that we are in existence and how it is that we are in the existence that we have and why we are made the way we are. We're just going to try to find things out like that. But then when we come to a conclusion eventually that there is a, an intelligence that has brought all these things into being, we find ourselves subjecting ourselves at least to that one because we feel compelled to do so because of the fact that he has made us. Remember also the Hebrew writer tells us in Hebrews 11 and 6, for without faith it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. I wish I had time just to deal with that. It's an interesting lesson in and of itself. That's another time. But if you're looking at this, there is something here that is provided by the writer that tells us this being that's responsible for having made us 
There is sufficient evidence for us to believe that he is, and we must come to that conclusion. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 1 made a point of that in verse 20. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things which are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they, those that are his antagonists, they are without excuse. They have no real reason. There were those that Paul is talking about here that had even had the knowledge of God but had not held it. He mentions in the same text that they did not like to retain God in their knowledge. They were looking at things that were in the world and were turning themselves back over to somehow losing the logical conclusions that should have been there to hold on to the faith that they would have had in the God that had made them. Everything around us, my friends, is basically of design. I don't know who was the design of the building. Some architect had the vision in mind as to how that this thing was going to come into being. This thing did not grow out of the ground. And it was not something that was thrown here by the virtue of all the materials thrown around by a tornado and just happened to end up in this particular place and in the fashion that it's in. That there is design in every bit of this. All the materials that are here were originally here somewhere upon the earth and were taken by men and put together in such a fashion that now we have what we have. You have intelligence, you have being, there has to be some reasoning as to why that exists. If you have intelligence, intelligence cannot come from non-intelligence if you've got any at all. It has to be from a source that can provide it. If you have life, life cannot come from non-life. It has to be from a source that provides it. So we've got ample evidence, ladies and gentlemen, for us to be able to believe in God, to have faith in him. And if he is the one that has sent his son in order to redeem sinful man, we've got to believe him too. Jesus made the statement in John chapter 8, except ye believe I'm he, you die in your sin. Verse 24. There's also an interesting statement. You might want to turn your Bibles and look at this. I find this to be a very interesting statement. It's in 1 Peter chapter 1. In 1 Peter chapter 1, I believe it's in verse 8, where here the apostle Peter is going to talk about what I think is two classes of people. And here you're talking about the faith that we ought to have in Christ. Now, in this particular passage here, he talks about, first of all, those who have not seen him. You know, by the time that the apostle Peter writes this epistle, this has been 30, 35 years since the time of Jesus' ascension. So there were those that would have been born subsequent to the time of the Lord's ascension. But yet, how is it that they have come to believe in Christ? having never been exposed to him. It's because they have the testimony of those who have, like Peter. Peter was one of those that had spent a great time, a great deal of time with the Lord. He had been exposed to his teachings. He had seen the mighty powers that Jesus himself had manifest on occasion. Oh, it was that one time when Peter walked on the water with him. You know, these are things with which he had had tremendous amount of experience in this regard. Not only this, he knew that the Lord had been crucified. He also knew where his tomb was after the word came that had been resurrected. Remember, it's this same apostle that's writing this epistle that ran to the tomb to check it out. And sure enough, 
the tomb is empty. This same apostle was also with the Lord on Mount Hermon when he was transfigured. This same apostle was also the one that watched the Lord ascend back into heaven. Now sometime during all this period, men like Peter would have told people like what he's talking about here in the first section of this verse who had never been exposed to them. Being able to testify unto them of what they had seen and what they had heard and what Jesus' death meant to them. Because all of us sin, do not. These people had done it as well. They're going to need the blood of Christ like everybody else. And so that is a message that's being put into their minds. And there's where that, that relationship begins to foster right there. It's the same with you and me, is it not? None of us have ever seen him. We've never been directly exposed to him. And yet... You believe in him, do you not? One of the advantages that we have is because what we find in a written word now that is sustaining that particular message for us. And so as a result, we're able, like Brother Barker and others, are going to go place to place and go to tell people about the sweet story of Christ. And so they might have that same faith and love for him that these people right here. Then he talks about that second group of people. And it's signified by the little word now. Though now you see him not. There are some people to whom Peter is writing here that had been exposed to him. They would have lived, been living in that time 30, 35 years before when they were exposed to the Lord's teaching and his mighty works that he, that he did. But though even now you see him not, you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. So they're coming to this very same conclusion that we ourselves are able to be even today. Come to the, with the evidence, come to the faith that Jesus is the Christ and that God the Father sent him. But now let's adjust our thinking just a little bit and let's carry this on to where we want to talk a little bit about that nature of God, the faithfulness of God. There's a passage that Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that probably as well describes what it is that we're talking about, chapter 10, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, that describes this as good as anything. When you're turning over 1 Corinthians chapter 10, let's remind ourselves a little bit of a background here. The church at Corinth had numerous problems. Uh, Paul was in Ephesus when he receives a, a letter from a sister there that was telling him about the different problems that did exist. And now when you come to chapter 10, he's addressing a number of, of these things with a particular perspective. I'm going to bring to your attention, he says, the Jewish fathers, the Jewish people, when we were coming out of the land of Egypt. Now these are God's people, bear that in mind. So when you peruse from beginning of verse one, let's go on through. One of the things you're going to see, he's going to talk about how that the Father, how God was leading, the Lord was leading them through the wilderness. But many of them rebelled. And there's several examples that he provides right here of the mistakes and the sins, the rebellion that was made here and the thousands, of course, that would perish in the wilderness because of their rebellion. Do keep in mind, please, these are the people of God. But that see, didn't make any difference because just the, the relationship that they would have through Abraham's blood here. You remember during the course of, when you go through the book of Exodus, when they were in fact at Sinai, you might remember, they were carrying on that orgy down at the base of the mountain 
when Moses is receiving the law from God, God had told Moses here, he was so frustrated, he was ready to destroy them and raise up another, another nation of people out of Moses. And Moses basically talked him out of it. But here's the fact is that now that this is something that is the case, what you're seeing is now in this particular text, the idea that now here these people are in the midst of this rebellion and now that you see what the results of the rebellion was going to be, many of them perished, and then you come down to verse 12. And so he's going to tell the people here, wherefore let him, he's pointing at them now, wherefore let him that thinketh he standeth take heed. Take heed to what? Take heed to these examples. Lest ye fall. And he could have said like they did. So now we see the tremendous amount of temptation that's coming upon them that did, but it was no excuse for them to be as rebellious as they were. So now you come to verse 13. There is no temptation taken you, but such as is common unto man. And here's our phrase. But God is faithful. Who will not suffer to be tempted above that which ye are able, but will with the temptation make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Now most of us are familiar with the fact that particularly as being children of God, we're subject to temptation. And when Satan finds out that we've given ourselves and pledged ourselves to the Lord, he doubles down on us on occasion, doesn't he? He's going to try to find out where our weaknesses are because he's going to try to get us to fall away. But that's the reason why Paul tells the Ephesian brethren in Ephesians chapter 6, he spends a great deal of time in that particular section telling the Ephesian brethren that they needed to put on the panoply of God, the Christian armor, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand. Make sure that you hold your line of defense. God, you see, has always provided this measure here. The provision of the escape has always been there. You see, he's spelled out for us what the concepts of righteousness are. He always has done that. He yet on the other side of the issue has always explained to us what things he considers to be abominable to him. And in the process, he does it like this. When you follow my will, Brother Mike, what does he do? He's going to bless those that obey. Is that not correct? He's always done that. What happens, Brother David, when in fact that they turn away from him? There's going to be judgments against them. Is that not correct? That is something that's not obscure in the scriptures. Is that not something that's found with a, a very clear pattern throughout the scriptures where when we obey, the blessings come, when we disobey then there are the judgments against us. So it ought to have been easy for these Israelites to be able to come to some conclusion in that respect as well. So now, God having provided the means, we ought to be able to make the proper decisions and have, make the prudent choices. Now there's another way for us to understand a little bit about the principle of God's faithfulness. It all wraps up in a very simple statement. Promises made, promises kept. People ever make promises to you? You've had promises made to you, hadn't you? Those of you who work in banks, there's a lot of people who even sign their 
their notes and things of this nature. Do they always keep them, by the way? They don't, man doesn't always keep promises, do they? We're not that dependable. Now, a lot of people are, but even the, at our best on occasions, we still, there are occasions when we may have, have every intention of fulfilling a promise, but their circumstances arise, keep us from it. Well, that's the difference between us and God. There's not anything that gets really in the way of that. Let me cite your attention for just a moment back to Genesis chapter 12. In Genesis chapter 12, those that are Bible students are familiar with this particular section because here is where God, of course, is speaking to Abraham. He's telling him to leave the land of his nativity, go to the land he's going to show him. He's going to make of him a great nation. And through his seed, what was the promise? All the nations of the earth would what? Be blessed. All the nations of the earth be blessed. Now, this is, don't mis mistake the notion here, as some have through the years. Many of the Jews have, in fact, the Jews today still do. They're of the opinion that if one is going to be justified by God, he's got to become a Jew in the flesh. That's, that, that's the way they've always thought. And as long as the Jew himself was of the opinion, and many of them were, especially you'll learn this in the days of our Lord, as long as they had Abraham's DNA, that justified them. You remember the statement in John chapter 8 that Jesus made a group of Jews there. Ye shall know the truth, truth shall make you free, verse 32, you remember that? And you remember their response. How say ye we be made free? We're Abraham's seed. We've never been in bondage to any man. When they were in bondage then, essentially. Because the Romans had to thumb over them, over them then. But Jesus, of course, is not denying the fact that they were of Abraham's seed. But what they're arguing is, is they're justified on the basis of Abraham's DNA. We've got it, therefore that justifies us. That's what they thought that, that promise meant. Jesus spent a great deal of time nixing that idea. The Apostle Paul spent a lot of his writings negating that concept. Jesus tells these people in John chapter 8, if you were of your father, you would do the works of your father. If you're going to be like Abraham and be justified by him, Abraham wasn't justified because of the blood that was in him. He was justified because he did what God said. Now, if you want to be justified like him, you do the same thing. But the fact of the matter is, you're doing the works of your father. Who was that? Verse 44, the devil. You do the works of him. Now, boy, that was a slap in the face. But nevertheless, that was the circumstances in which they find themselves. But yet, Jesus indeed was that promised seed. When you come to Romans, the 15th chapter, if you'll look with me in verse 8, here's where the apostle Paul is going to bring to our attention right here where he's mentioning that fulfillment. You notice in verse 8, he states, says, Now I say that Jesus Christ was a minister of the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made to the fathers. So he's even writing to those among the Romans, pointing this out. Where there might have been those that had some problem in understanding, as many of the Jews did not during the time the Lord was here, that he was the Christ. There were all the evidences were there. Now, Paul is also bringing this by divine inspiration here, sustaining that point. He indeed was the fulfillment of that promise. Promise made, promise kept. Well, also remember the promise says all nations of the earth would be blessed. So what about the Gentiles? 
They didn't have to become Jews in the flesh. They too, through Christ, could be all one. That's what Paul was talking about in Ephesians 2. But look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9. And you got this phrase that is also part of our study again here in this particular text. God is faithful. By whom? You were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. He's telling them, here is the fulfillment of that promise. It was through him that you're able to come into this fellowship and understanding. Also what Paul, rather Peter, is going to tell those of his readers in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 4 where God had given to us exceeding great and precious promises that by these you might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruptions in the world through lust. Now you tell me, how was that achieved? How is it that we're able to escape the corruption that's in the world? What's he talking about? Our sin. How is it that we're able to overcome that? It was through his blood, was it not? How is it that we access the blood of Christ? through our obedience and baptism to him. Jesus is the fulfillment of all of this. That's the reason why when you look back to these statements like Paul is going to mention on occasion, when you start talking about the promises of God, they're neither yea or nay. Not yea and nay, rather. They are yea. God's not going to tell one group of people one way and then back off on it or tell one promise one group of people one thing and something totally different to another group. It's not going to be something that's so ambiguous that people can't understand exactly what it is that's being stated regarding the terms of the gospel. It is yea, he says. The promises of God are yea. Now that, all this brings it to an interesting observation and question. How is it that men like Peter and Paul were able to come to trust in God's faithfulness the way they did. Because, ladies and gentlemen, there was a pattern in faithfulness. You remember, let's just kind of go back a little bit before I go get, in, get into the trust principle here. I'm going to go back into the Old Testament just a minute. Turn your Bibles to the book of Deuteronomy. In this particular section of Scripture, here are the occasion when the people are on the precipice of entering into the promised land. The book of Deuteronomy contains a good number of admonitions that Moses is going to provide for the people and he's doing this even in respect of what it is that we're talking about here. And I want you to look at a few of the texts. Turn to first of all to Deuteronomy chapter seven. He's getting the people's minds set for how it is and why it is that they're going to be able to accomplish this. Now, there's something you can recall. Earlier on, remember there had been 12, tri or 12 uh, spies had been sent into the land? You remember 10 of them came back with a negative report? Remember that? Two of them came back with a positive. Recall. All right. Now, you remember... The basic attitude of this 10 is these people are too great. They're too big for us. We're grasshoppers in their sight. We're not going to be able to do this. Joshua and Caleb says, oh, yes, we can. 
So you got to understand that if those 10 were of that disposition, that's something that's going to have influence on other folks as well. So now you think about this. Now they're getting ready to enter the land. Chapter 7, verse 9. Know therefore that the Lord thy God, he is God, the faithful God. That's important right there. Because now after having brought them out of the land of Egypt, he told them he was going to do that. Moses came to him, told them we're going to get, God's going to get you out. And he tells them basically how it is it's going to be accomplished. Well, everything took place. Now they get to the Red Sea. They're still upset now at this particular point because Pharaoh is pursuing them. They feel like they're trapped. Moses tells them, be still and watch the salvation of the Lord. And lo and behold, the Red Sea opens. They cross over on dry land. The Egyptians are destroyed. Time and time, they start complaining about their food, their drink. God provides over and over and over again. He faithfully produces. Now watch. He is God, the faithful God, which keepeth covenant and mercy with them that love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. Ooh. Interesting observation. God keeps his promises, but he also places some contingencies on those promises on occasion. He tells him, you'll be able to enter into the land and you can stay in the land as long as you stay with me. You depart from me, you're not going to get to stay in the land. You remember those admonitions? You're seeing the preface of it here. Let's go back to chapter 4. Deuteronomy chapter 4, once you look at verse 31. Now you see a positive admonition here. And you're going to see this repeated in several different places throughout the Bible. But you see, for the Lord thy God, verse 31, the Lord thy, thy God is a merciful God. He will not forsake thee, neither destroy thee, nor forget the covenant of thy fathers which he swear unto them. Um, he is not going to forget it. He'll keep it. Promises will be, have been made. He will keep those promises. Now go to the end of the book, chapter 31, toward the end of the book. Chapter 31, Deuteronomy 31, let's look at verse 6. Be strong and of good courage. Fear not, nor be afraid of them, those indigenous peoples in the land. For the Lord thy God, it is he that doth go with thee. He will not fail thee nor forsake thee. Now, only thing that men like Peter and Paul would have to do would just recount this to those people that they knew as Jews. Bring this to their attention. How God, in fact, has been faithful through all of these events and scenarios that we can recall that are found within the law. There's this, all this pattern. So now it comes to the trust principle. How is it that we come to trust in the faithfulness of God? Can we not also see this same pattern? Have we not been recipient of God's blessings ourselves on a rather perpetual basis? Have you ever noticed how difficult life can get when we turn away from him? You ever noticed that? It can get seriously bad on occasion. I've talked to so many people that had problems like this and recognize I'm fighting against the Lord and I cannot do this anymore. 
I'm going to have to make my alliance with him and their life begins to change. There is a pattern here. So we look at the term trust. The terms that you'll find in the original language basically give you the idea of reliance and confidence. There's another synonym, the term assurance. Now I'm going to ask you a simple question. Is the principle of trust innate in the human or is it a developed trait? It's developed. We'll illustrate it very simply. Those of you who know may know I'm a father of two, grandfather of six, got one great-grandchild, another on the way. Now, as fathers, oh, incidentally, Father's Day was this last Sunday. Happy Father's Day to all of you. I had a great one, too. I hope you did. Now, as fathers, one of the things that we do, when the child generally gets enough strength and matures just enough, you take that child, you ever done this? And cast it up a little bit to the air and catch it? Done that. You ever watch the face of that child the first time you do that? There is that great sense of fear. That's not something that's common to them. They have been used even there the whole time in the womb, even out of the womb, now being held and cuddled. There's where they get their sense of security. Now that they're suspended in space right here, that is unnatural. Therefore, is that sense of fear. But you catch them, you bring them back, you comfort them, and you tell them everything's going to be all right. And you do that a few more times. And a few more times, they're going to have that sense of fear. But after a bit, it ceases to be fear, and now it becomes a thrill. So you begin to throw them up, and they cackle and carry on. And then, of course, when they grow up a little, little bigger, back where I live right now, Brother David's mentioned I, I live in the cabin that uh, Tammy Wynette's step-granddaddy lived in. That cabin's 107 years old, old cabin. But when it was placed here on this side of the hill, I live on the side of the hill, part of the hill, of course, had to be cut out so it'd have a level place to set it. And then, of course, right behind the house, you've got about an eight or nine-foot patio back there and the wall. And on each side, of course, is the wall. And the kids, the grandkids particularly then, they would come over to the edge of that wall I'd set them up there or they'd run off, pop, catch me. So I catch them, set them down. Now when you do that, you started something now. Because you set them down, here they go, they're gonna run around and they're gonna do it, pop, catch me. Now why, what is it that compels that child to do something basically again that's unnatural? Because they know that if somebody's not there, if they hit the ground, they're going to be injured. But they won't pop to catch them. They want that thrill. So pop is going to catch them and set them down. And they realize, even through what they've had in that period where it cast them up in the air, that I'm not going to let them be hurt. So they develop a trust in me that pop's not going to let them down or let them be harmed. Oh, that, just, that translates into other things later on, doesn't it? Because it's not just going to be involved jumping off a little ledge. There are going to be other obstacles that they're going to face in life and who they're going to turn to to help them. Somebody in whom they have developed a trust because they know that Pop's got their best interest at heart. Isn't that the same way that God does with us? Isn't that the reason we ought to have developed a trust in his faithfulness because of exactly that same principle? 
Let me bring a couple examples to mind to you. I want to ask you a question too. Now, you may have thought of this before. I don't know if you have been finding good. We'll just cover some material that you already know. Otherwise, if you haven't, this might be interesting to you. I'm going to ask you a very simple question. What was it that compelled Noah to build the ark? What was it that compelled him to believe? I got an answer the other day, somebody says, because of fear. So I asked him the same question. What compelled him to fear? What was he fearing? Well, he was told he was going to destroy the earth with water. What was it compelled him to fear that when he'd never seen it before? It had never rained or flooded before. What is it that compelled him to build that ark? Says, so well, God told him to understand that. But now this gets to the heart of it. Where is the background between him and God? Where is his spiritual support structure? He doesn't have a lot. According to Genesis chapter 6, everybody's thinking was only evil continually. And you're only seeing in Genesis chapter 6 that God had favor with Noah. And evidently he's, of course, got influence over his family, his three sons, their wives, and his own wife. But where is it that Noah gets his support structure spiritually? Did he get it from his daddy? His daddy was Lamech. Evidently he died in the flood. He wasn't getting it there. His, his granddaddy was Methuselah. The only thing we know about him is he's the oldest man on record, 969 years. According to what we're able to understand about him, he either died in the year of the flood or in the flood itself. So there's not much support structure there. So what about his great-granddad? Ah, we may have struck on something there. Because Enoch, the Bible tells us, was a man that walked with God. Now, Noah lived long enough. He lived 950 years himself. He lived long enough to evidently have been influenced by Enoch. So there's evidently something there that would give him a connection. I need to follow along with what old great-granddad must have been like. And so he follows this. I mean, you think about it. No one else in the world outside his immediate family has any sense of spirituality at all. He has had to develop trust from somewhere. Oh, we've got an even better one than this. What is it that compelled Abraham to leave Ur to go to a land he'd never seen before? What is his support structure? His father, his two brothers were idol worshipers. We don't know the background past that where Abraham is concerned, but there's evidently something that compels him when God tells him to leave Ur to go to the land of Canaan. He does it without question. That's amazing thought to me. Now, of course, by the time you get to Genesis 22, you can ask the question too. What was it that compelled Abraham to take Isaac over to the land of Moriah and then sacrifice it because now at least at this point there is a pattern that we have established in the scripture but before that things get real interesting as to how it is that all of this has come about let me give you another example you know there are some things when you start taking into account the commands that God has given, a lot of them you know, really don't make a lot of sense. I mean, what kind of sense did it make to tell Noah to build an ark? B great big ship, 
wouldn't make much sense at all until the flood came, the rains came. What about a fellow by the name of Naaman, 2 Kings 5, who was an Assyrian captain, stricken with leprosy, you know the story. He's encouraged to go down to see the prophet Elisha. Elisha doesn't even come out and talk to him. He just tells him, go dip seven times in the river Jordan. How much sense did that make? I mean, you look at it through Naaman's eyes. He got mad. He was going to go back to Damascus until one of his servants told him, look, bud, you don't have anything to lose but your life. He told you just go down the river Jordan. This is an unconventional way to take care of leprosy, wasn't it? If it had been something in the water, they would have taken care of leprosy. Every leper in the world would have been there and they would have eradicated it. But it wasn't just the water itself, obviously. It gets back to a water salvation, doesn't it? Nothing in the water. It was just simply doing what God said. Not once, twice, three times, four times, seven times you must dip. When he comes out the seventh time. It didn't make any sense, but yet when he, takes, when he does that, fulfills it. What about the example of Genesis, or Joshua chapter 6? People are getting ready to take the city of Jericho. An unconventional way. Let's just imagine this for the moment. If I got a moment minute or two let's just say now oh we just we'll just use david over here general david joshua comes to see general david and he tells david says i want you to make the plans to overtake city jericho david works on that couple of days joshua comes in and tells him uh, and david interrupts him and he tells him i think i about got all this fixed up made all the plans i've got everything set up how we're going to breach the wall get into the city and joshua tells general david says Scrap the plan. He's what are you talking about? He says, God tells us this is how we're going to do it. You're going to walk around the city one day for six days, seven times on the seventh day, and blow your trumpet. Now, that doesn't make a lot of sense. But yet, when Joshua tells General David, God said that's the way we're going to do it. I know General David's going to tell him, okay, if God said that's the way it's going to be, that's the way it is. Why? Because there is a pattern. That when God made a promise, that he'd already told them that he had given them the city. But this is the means by which it's going to be accomplished. We have the pattern of all the things that God has done for us. There is, you're seeing his faithfulness replete through the scriptures. We have every reason in the world to trust him, don't we? Absolutely. You have listened well. I appreciate it so very much. I have enjoyed being with you. I look forward to opportunities to do it again. If you're ever our way, come see us. As I was mentioned to me a little while ago, we'll treat you so many different ways you're bound to like one of them.